Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Matt Macri-Waller is a global thought leader in the employee experience space, specialising in how technology can help bridge the gap between companies and its employees. He is the founder and CEO of Benefex, the award-winning global employee experience provider. Matt's vision is now impacting the lives of millions of people at work every day. But despite his business being 10 years old, he also believes we're just getting started. His mission is simple. Everyone deserves to have an exceptional employee experience every day. He believes that when you look at any workplace, no one comes to work to do a bad job or be actively disengaged. There are just a collection of missed opportunities to make the most of every single interaction and experience. Matt is part of the advisory board for KPMG's Global Fintech 100 business and for Salary Finance. He is a Barclays Entrepreneur Ambassador and Advisor and has been nominated as a business hero by The Times and secured a place within the Reward 100 most influential leaders in the industry. Plus, he has a 99% CEO approval rating on Glassdoor. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Matt Macri-Waller. I'd read that your mission was that everyone deserves or is that everyone deserves an exceptional employee experience. So where did the inspiration for that mission come from? I, I, th- I think for me, it was all from... Like right back at the beginning, I guess I've always come at it from the view like no one comes to work to do a bad job and like no one comes to work to kind of be actively disengaged. I think there's just an inherent belief I have that people, they want to do well, they want to help, they want to be part of something. And so what I'd seen though in organizations was more often than not like those opportunities to connect both ends of that, i.e. like the person who really wants to be involved and part of it and the organization connecting with them were a bit like kind of ships that passed in the night. Yeah. And so it just felt like when I looked at it, the organizations were missing lots of opportunities to kind of bring those two sides together. And I think we've all been in that situation where there's been a positive, right? Where you get recognized by your manager or something great happens or you, you get that promotion or whatever it might be that you've been working towards and all the kind of cogs click together for you. And then, then you know, net net is the organization succeeds you know, as a result of that. And so... But as I said, for me, it was like, could we, when we first started, could we use technology to kind of make more of those connections happen? And for me, it really centers around this idea that, that everyone deserves to go somewhere where that they believe in what their organization is trying to do. They feel part of that. And they feel that whatever they're doing, whether, you know, we're picking up stuff and wiping down the tables through to, you know, deciding on the next five years for the business, that everyone can feel like they contribute to that. But also that their experiences, as you would expect, I think we've all become, I think, much more demanding in terms of our expectations in life generally. Yeah. But I just think for me, you know, I, I just think that so many organizations don't think through the little stuff and the big stuff. And I just think there was a huge opportunity there to, to really help organizations design these experiences that, that really kind of connected with people. So that's kind of where it came from. And was there a... If you like a eureka moment, is there a moment <laughs> at which you, you know a moment that something that really pissed off through, you know, pissed you off through your career, a moment at which you thought that 
I need to do something about this because I'm not getting the exceptional experience that I feel I deserve when I come to work. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I think there was a few of those along the way. And I think that the organisations shall remain nameless. <laughs> sure. um, but I think the frustration points for me were really ones of some of this stuff's really easy to fix, right? And so I think it just needs someone to have thought through it. But when I got to those frustration points in the organizations that I was working with, you kind of, the answer was broadly always the same, which is, um, yeah, that's the way we've always done it, which is kind of like the worst statement ever, right? Because it's, it's basically like saying the world hasn't moved on, we've just kind of stayed where we are. And so for me, there was kind of a growing itch to scratch of kind of like, but why, but why, you know, a bit, a bit of that kind of childish kind of why, why, why. But also just uh, it felt like we were getting to this kind of tipping point where a bit like when customer experience came in like 20 odd years ago, when we all started to think about how you connect every bit of how you work with a customer and, you know, you try and make sure that experience is great from that first touch point to the last one and that you get that kind of repeat visit and loyalty piece that everyone started to think about quite a while ago. It felt, it felt like... HR kind of personnel kind of people functions weren't quite thinking about it in that way and if you think about how much gets spent on finding the great people bringing them into the organization training them trying to keep them there it felt almost criminal that we hadn't been thinking about what's the overall experience and how you kind of connect those things together mm. and it's everything from like you know if it takes me 25 minutes to get just into the car park if it takes me a whole chunk of time to then get through the barriers if it takes you know i then sit at a chair that's got a broken arm on a laptop that's five years old and then you want me to do my absolutely best work you know they're just some examples of things you can quite easily go and fix by just thinking about them. Now, a lot of the stuff we do is a, is, is a little bit more complex than some of those things yep. around kind of how you drive you know, performance and engagement and kind of get people to understand what it means culturally to work somewhere and all those types of things. But like I said, it is those small things that so often will cause just day-to-day -day frustrations which build up for people. And they just they just don't need to be there, I think, if you just think about it in a really conscious way. And it's almost like if I was a customer of this organization as an employee – what what should that look like and you know i'm not saying everyone's got endless budgets because they don't yep. but there's just so many little things you can do to make it better if you give you an example kind of from from your world so often in when you kind of think about how that recruitment process works so much focus on finding really great talent right and bringing those people through and so much focus on how we interview them and who we're going after and all that you get to this point of offering somebody and if you think if they're senior you've probably got three to six months before they might join, dependent on their existing organization. So all this focus, all that point, you offer, everyone's signed, everyone's happy. And then you just have this period, largely a period of abandonment where we all forget we hired that person. We might contact them occasionally to check in and see that they're all right. And then we expect them to want to be here and arrive kind of three or six months down the line. And so you just have to think about in that scenario, what does that say about the culture of that organization? That there was all this focus in finding me. And when I arrive, sure as, sure as damn it, there'll be a lot of work to get on with. But in that bit in the middle where you could help me understand, you know, some more detail about what the culture's like, even down to simple stuff. Where do I go on the first day? What what do I need to wear? Who do I need to ask for? You know, um, the legal stuff I might need to do, documentation I might need to provide. You can just make it such a better experience for someone by being a bit more on the front foot with that stuff. So how did you, um, all of which I totally agree with, by the way, <laughs> how, do you, how did you, 
I guess the nub of an idea. At what point did you think this is a business proposition? Sure, sure. So all of the things that you're referring to, I've been 25 years out of education, therefore working. Um, all of your ex- the experiences you're describing, experiences I've had. Mm. But but at what point did you think this is a business proposition that I could then subsequently yeah, monetize? That is a fair question. I think I think for me. What was interesting was back to that original goal of wanting to connect organizations and individuals. And it was a lofty goal when I first started. And it was kind of like, okay, well, uh, some, a few reality checks. We've got no money. <laughs> so we've got to start somewhere where there's like value to unlock on both sides, like for the organization and for people. And so initially we looked at it in quite a lot of detail and we landed on, well, actually, within employee benefits, there's typically about 26% of payroll is spent on this benefit category. And back then, it felt like on one side, you've got the organization saying, you know, I don't know if I'm spending the right money on the right people in the right places. I want to give people more choice and flexibility, but it always seems to cost me more. I don't really know who's doing what with what benefit or whether they appreciate it. On the other side, you had the employee saying, well, I'm a consumer, so I want to be treated like a consumer. I want more choice. I want to choose what I want. And, you know, I want you to educate me about that. And so it felt like we could unlock value on that. Um, on both sides of that coin. And so we started down, let's focus in on the benefits experience first because it felt like there was real value to unlock. And back then, you know, I was, uh, it was was a while ago, but I was, what, 23? um, And uh, there wasn't the kind of role model examples that I think there are today. So there weren't really young founders. There wasn't really any of that stuff back then, much to my disappointment. But I think I kind of also didn't know what I didn't know. So I kind of thought, well, there is a business here we can use technology to really unlock value on both sides and we'll kind of we need to just really go at this space and you know, we were we, you know one part luck and i think one part timing and that we you know that uh, those early years we won some amazing customers so customers that are still with us now so people like the aa believed in us people like de beers believed in us and you know we've really kind of stayed with them from there but i tell you i will tell you a funny story when i first started and what we were doing was having to go and pitch to boards right so you tended to find it always eventually ended up at, okay, this is a cultural impact piece. This is a high spend item. You know, you end up pitching to HR director, CFO, potentially even the whole board about it. And so at at 23, back in those days, you weren't seen as kind of our oh, young progressive technological founder, let's go do it. You were just seen as, who's that guy who doesn't know anything in the corner? So I did this genius thing where my dad had retired and I asked him to come and work one day a month. Uh, which became one day a week uh, and then became full-time. But back in the day, it was the one day a month. And what I did was send to all those meetings on those days. He came and he was the gray hair in gravitas, as I was like to say to him. And so he opened the meetings, talking about the business and everything else. I did all the technical pieces and he closed the meeting. And we got so much more traction that way because there just wasn't, there wasn't this kind of archetypal young founder back then. I do always joke with him that he was cheap labor, but I think um, <laughs> it was a bit more than that in the sense that actually back at the time, I just found this barrier to people's perceptions of what a young person could understand and, and how they could bring technology yeah. to bear. It was kind of very much, a, you know, you had to have been around the block and, and they were the kind of people that people trusted. But yeah, it was quite interesting to do that and, and see the instant change almost overnight with, with where we got to with customers. I don't want to um, to sound too cliche as a consequence of the questions that I'm, I'm asking, but but I suppose if you look back at, at 23, there wasn't that perception that, as you say, that, that young young founder to which you refer. So where, where was the, who were the role models? Where was the inspiration? <laughs> if you look back, 
you know, without wishing to get too kind of psychoanalytical, sure, sure. was there a, a people you looked up to, people you admired? Where was the inspiration coming from? Yeah, I was I was really lucky in that my mum and dad had always run and owned businesses, right? And so the the brilliant thing for us is they never shielded us from any of it. So all the table conversations, all the ups and downs, they shared with us, you know, right from a young age, and explained it to us, so we understood the mechanics of what could go well and what couldn't, you know. And, you know, I think my dad, he probably hate me saying this, but I think he's been bankrupt like two or three times. And so we saw the real highs and we saw the real lows. Yeah. Um, but it always meant we had a certain, there kind of wasn't a fear that went with kind of starting a business. I think a lot of people say, oh, it's kind of really brave to go do it when we first did it. But it inherently felt very natural because it had always been something we'd always talked about. And so I think, you know, I, I'm forever grateful to both my mum and dad because I think, what they enabled my sister and I to see was that kind of very real side of starting a business and working for yourself and all the purpose and motivation that can give you at the same time, all the ups and downs that you inevitably will see. And the fact that you, you, if you're going to start anything, as you well know, you know, you have to be resilient, right? There's going to be knocks, not just life happening around you, but there's going to be knocks and ups and downs in the business. And there's going to be those months when you can't pay everybody. And there's going to be those months when you don't quite know what the answer is. And there's going to be the 4 a.m.s where you're still trying to work out what the answer is to something that you've got to solve by six. And so I think we just, I was really lucky in that respect. And then I think latterly, you know, there's been some really interesting people that I've kind of followed and stayed close to and people that have kind of inspired me along the way. And I think, you know, a lot of the what's publicized is very kind of US-centric in terms of the market and what's out yep. there, very US-focused. And so you kind of get this very singular kind of, okay, you've got to go get venture money and you need to kind of triple, triple, double, double. And that's kind of how they think about revenue. And and that works for a whole chunk of businesses, but it, it really doesn't for a whole chunk as well. And, you know, so I think, you know, I've been inspired by, there's a young entrepreneur called Jamie True, who I've, you know, always seen as kind of someone who I, I lean on quite heavily when it gets to kind of difficult points and I've got questions and those types of things. He's always been, you know, he's one of those people that's super busy, but has always been available for any queries and questions. It's a great guy called Glenn Elliott, who ran a business called Reward Gateway, who, again, his energy and his ability to think about markets, I've always found quite uh, inspiring in that context um, and then you know conversely there are you know, clearly the US is a fountain of lots of talent and so I've always enjoyed the Andreessen Horowitz stuff so yeah. um, you know they, they do some phenomenal um, publications and marketing and um, you know I think that you, you can't deny the way that they think about the market is very different um, and, and when you think of kind of more famous people I guess for me I've always really liked how Reid Hoffman thinks, so kind of just the way he kind of articulates himself and how he thinks about it. I've always been quite inspired by Aaron Levy, who's a very young guy who started running Box. And um, yeah, so just, I think there's a whole raft of different, I mean, I'm I'm someone who reads constantly, so I've literally, you know, if you, so in, in my office, I've got like 10 books on the go. By the side of the bed, I've got another three or four. And so I think my wife is forever trying to hide and tidy away books that I'm partway through. But I think... Um, that's just that's just how, how I process. I think I just I like to read a lot. So if you, if you go back to those early days, w- was there a point at which was there a moment where you thought a kind of sharp intake of breath, uh, a four a.m. moment to which you refer? <laughs> but was there a moment where you thought I don't think this is going to work? And and if you know if there was, how did you how did you manage to get through that? Yes, yeah, it's, it's weird. I think t- time gives you very rosy goggles. I think at times I I, I remember and, and I think. My wife would definitely say that I think th- there were some times when you just 
didn't know the answer. And so you kind of had to go a little bit on hope, a little bit on gut, a little bit on how much data could you get. But there there were definitely times when you were like, I don't know how you can recover from this. And then, you know, you you go home of an evening, you know, you sit down, you kind of think it through, you take a little bit of a walk, whatever it is you do to kind of just clear your mind. And then you go, right, okay, there has to be a way through, right? And there's very few things in life that haven't been solved by someone, parallel or otherwise. And so... I tend to think about kind of how you group problems into like, has anyone ever solved it? Has someone solved it? Has someone solved it in your market? And then just try and rationalize it a little bit that way. But yeah, there were, I would be lying if I said there wasn't a few of those. <laughs> I guess and there were points at which it felt like there were one every day, to be fair. <laughs> in particular, we were growing quickly and you were trying to you know, find people, bring them in, get them to be effective, customer, customer. You know, there was just a lot to, to kind of juggle in those early days. And I think that... Um, there's a big difference between a very well-funded business and a bootstrap business. And yeah. I think that bootstrap businesses have some solid disciplines, but obviously one of the things is you put a lot of, there's a lot that goes into the people making it work and kind of holding the two ends together a little bit at times. So yeah. And, and did, you boot, did you bootstrap? Was that the, that yeah, the way you went we back? Did, yeah, so we did. So we did. I mean, we ended up actually then funding as well. So we were the first investment for business. Yeah. yeah. Business growth fund yeah. in 2011. So we were their first investment and, I think what we got to was it was that moment of, you know, that meeting you have where you're like, here's the kind of 50 strategic things we could do. Let's distill it to 10. And we got to the 10 and we were like, this is like really exciting. Like the market's growing. We can see like a path to it. And oh, hang on a minute. We can afford to do one. It was kind of that moment of like actually to make a step change in the business. We needed external capital to really do that and to kind of kick on. And so yeah, we do always use deals to fund kind of the growth in the business. But what the funding enabled us to do is to really make a step change and a really significant one. Would you, if, if you look, looking back and reflecting, what, if anything, might you do differently? Oof. What would I say to young me? I probably would have said, in a lot of instances, act faster on what you thought your gut was telling you. So that covers, you know, people, that covers when we thought we should go and get investment and then we delayed for a little bit longer. That covers convince you know, how convinced you were or not about a certain market to go into i think in all instances when when i got it right i probably spent a little bit too much time working out had i got it right right and just kind of not i, I don't think procrastinating i don't think that would be fair to say we were still moving at pace but almost like i probably had the answer at 60 percent of the data but I kept pushing until I got to 80% of the data I needed. Does that make sense? Yeah. So rather than like, I probably knew and was convinced. And to be honest, at 60%, you'll probably make as many positive and negative decisions as you would at 80 or 90. Yeah. <laughs> because I think the reality is that, that if anyone says different, the net net is, you know, to me, growth in any organization, and certainly the businesses that I've mentored and worked with and funded and all the other stuff I've done since, you definitely, it's an aggregate of the right and wrong decisions that you make. I don't ever think it's like, there's, there's no business I've ever met where everything that what they made a decision on was right. You just have to net out at, at better. And yeah, I think that's kind of, it's definitely one of the big lessons. I don't think I'd say anything else to myself. Maybe the converse of that is maybe view it earlier on as a marathon, not a sprint. I think there's a lot I've, I've done subsequently about mental health for founders is, is quite poor certainly the ones I know and I think often it's the last thing people think about until it's almost too late so kind of founder burnout is very real yeah and there's a point past which when you know you've got the market with you 
I think you, you need to kind of, someone almost needs to tap you on the shoulder and say, right, this is now a long-term journey. This is a, this is a marathon. You know, you're going to need to learn how to manage and have breaks and take time for things that are important, like, you know, whether it's your health or family or whatever's important to you. You just, you perform so much better when you do that. But it took me a while to learn that. Do you think part of the challenge is that so much of what we read or so much of what gets written about anyway mm. in terms of the success of founder-led businesses, it's the real unicorns, it's the real standouts. It's, you know, there's 10 guys in a room and all of a sudden Facebook have paid a billion quid for us. Sure, and we've sure. only been in existence for 18 months. We, so everyone, there is a level of expectation that says, I start a business, yeah. I'm going to be a millionaire or not, if not a billionaire in three years. Yeah. So rarely does that happen. And to your point around it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, I don't think is something that gets perhaps talked about enough because it's not sexy no and i think that the interesting thing is that all that kind of uh for one of a better phrase all that founder porn that's out there of like i got up at 4 a.m and i was there to watch the sunrise while i did my mindfulness and then yeah yeah, is is probably not very real for most people and i think i think that there's a reason i therefore find certain books refreshing like you know it's a very famous book now but one of the earliest books i read when it first came out was the kind of hard thing about hard things by ben horowitz because it's a very real view of what it's like to be a founder that kind of gut-wrenching it's a very honest account of what it's like right because a lot of the stuff i've ever read or you see is like how amazing it is right it's a bit like the kind of instagram facebook kind of view of what it's like to be a founder so i'll take all those amazing moments and i'll glue them together and we'll ignore the fact that you know just had to go and i don't know unblock the toilets or whatever it might be as part of that and so i think you know to me i think that you you're absolutely right i think a lot of what we get shown is like unless it feels like that for you you're wrong yeah whereas i'd like to see a, a lot more books come out that are for one that are for the 99.999 percent of businesses that don't get to be facebook because there's still some phenomenal businesses in there and some amazing businesses doing some amazing things for people. And I don't think they quite necessarily get the airtime. And also just some more honest accounts. I think that, you know, if you choose this vocation and you choose to be a starter of anything or founder of a business, it's a very specific life choice. And I think you need to go in eyes wide open. And I don't think it's enough just to say, wow, it's like hell. And you're like, when you're in hell, just keep going forwards or whatever that Winston Churchill quote was. Um, But I think kind of, for me, I I just think a bit more honesty about what that journey is actually like would help a lot more people. Because as well, when you reflect on it, when you're in that moment, it's this kind of compounding effect of like, well, I've read all this stuff and it's amazing for everyone else. And I feel like I'm in hell right now. (laughs) So I must be doing it wrong. Or maybe I should stop and give up because... Clearly, it's not what it's supposed to be like. Whereas actually, and I'm a little bit older, the more founders I see go through it, the more friends I've seen start things, you realize at points we're all in hell. (laughs) And it's just a case of the fact that, you know, those low points are accentuated and low, but the high points are equally so. And so, yeah, I just think... It's a roller coaster, isn't it? It's a hell of a ride. It definitely, definitely is that. Definitely is. And I I think that's universal. I think think that's definitely one thing that, you know, I've I've worked with very, very well-funded businesses and I've worked with bootstrap businesses. And I think in all of them, I think that there are massive highs and massive lows. And, you know, I think, I think... Most of the founders I've ever met, there's a kind of, there's almost a David and Goliath need in them that's kind of like, I'm going to go prove that I can do this thing that's, you know, against some kind of, you know, take down the big boys or be that alternative or whatever else. And, and where does that David or Goliath thing come from mm. from within you? You know, if you look at even the uh, the Silex stuff around know your why, what's your purpose, all those sure, kind sure. of things. So what is it that gets that gets you out of bed in the morning? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that is... That's a, that, <laughs> the well, I've got four kids, so they get you out of bed often yeah. enough. And my wife breeds dogs, so occasionally the dogs wake me up. But I think, um, no, I think the reality for me, I guess, is... Gosh, when I think about my why, I've always loved looking at a market or a problem and then creating something that then goes into that, that kind of solves that. And I think it's that that buzz I get is actually of, of really solving those problems for people and watching people use the products that we've built and get real kind of, not just engagement in them, but actually that, that actually it's helping them to do something that, that they couldn't have done before. And that that really drives me and motivates me. I think as I've gotten a bit older, I like to be involved in businesses that are doing something that's also got an inherent good underlying it. I think there's... There's no surprise that I think the market has seen a growing kind of trend of B Corps and people who are kind of very much got much more of a social purpose to their business. Yeah. Because I think I can I can feel that for me as the kind of real driver. I think purpose is a really difficult question because I think, again, I look at some of the most successful founders I know and would I have said that they're completely motivated by the industries they're in? No, but they're motivated by the problems that they're solving and almost by how successful they've been in them, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think there's always this view that as a founder, like I had this immense problem that I'm going to solve for myself. Uh, probably a bad example these days, but was you know, Travis as the founder of Uber, was he like completely driven by transforming you know, transportation? Uh, probably not, right? But I think once that success was there and the goal was there, I think that becomes kind of very much a focus and a drive for people. So inevitably i also think that, that that money's a part of it right for people and it wasn't the driver for me but in the back of my head i always had having seen the ups and downs for my family it was always financial freedom was one of the biggest goals for me so it was kind of could i know that my family were going to be well taken care of if anything was to happen to me and i got kind of eccentric because I've, I've got four kids two of them are on the autistic spectrum and right. probably won't work and so it kind of just accentuates that really for me as a kind of, you know, making sure that, you know, we, we've kind of succeeded on, the, on their behalf to make sure that they, they can be well looked after. And I think the, the inevitable thing is if anyone's listening to this thinking about starting anything, I think from my perspective, know that everyone around you is involved in that. Like, like you know, when we've kind of sold businesses or raised money or anything else, it, my wife and I have always celebrated together because there's definitely no way I could have done it without her. Yeah. Because she all the way through picked up all the slack. So, you know, the things I couldn't be at, the things I couldn't attend when I had to fly at short notice to a different country, you know, when I had to be working through the night, if she made it so that I didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. In amongst the fact that she's a mother with a full-time job and home educates our kids and has a dog business that she runs as well. So quite how she's managed all of that, I don't know. Um, but yeah, all power to her. But I think that that's, you, may, you raise a really interesting point because it's, it's a, for want of a better word, starting a business is a lifestyle choice. And it, it is all-encompassing. Yeah. Whether you start off with the very best of intentions to ensure that it doesn't become so, that's not always an easy uh, thing no, to achieve. Uh, you, you need that support, that network, that framework around you yeah. in order that you might make it happen. Yeah, I mean, 2018 was a really interesting year for me because I think it was a big inflection point as um, you know, Benefix really kind of grew up and became a teenager and we got uh, investment from Bain Capital. And so it, I was kind of in a reflective mood. And I think what was interesting is the reality was that in various forms in the businesses I've been involved with, I'd been on tap and available 24-7 since 2003. And so kind of 15 years in, you suddenly realize actually 
you know, it was kind of the first real holiday I had post that where I felt like I had a proper break and the team could pick up everything that was going on and I didn't need to worry. And that's, it was a weird feeling because it was kind of, um, as a founder particularly, but I think even yeah, as someone who starts anything and has that accountability, you're always personally on the hook. Yeah. And I've always done largely kind of enterprise technology or financial technology, but I think in enterprise tech particularly, that kind of the founder is the voice of that business. And so you're kind of, um, you know, praised or the, the equivalent uh, dependent on, on the situation. But it was always, you know, almost impossible to turn off um, during those years. So, yeah. And, and so how, sure. how do you turn off? I've got another <laughs> you bring up now. What, what do you do to, obviously you read a lot and I want sure, to come sure. back to that because I'm a, I'm a big reader, but I'm also fascinated by some of the things you might be reading. But what do you do to switch off? How does... How does Macriwala wind down? Do you wind down? Yeah, no, I definitely wind down. I think there's a combination of things. So I do get a, a bit like, you know, I think most parents kind of, my kids are a huge leveler. What, what sort of ages are they? Uh, so my eldest is 13 yep. and youngest is seven. So they're, they're all quite close together. But there's a huge leveler of like, you, you know, you're walking through the door and and what the kids want to talk about is kind of, you know, real in their world, right? And the latest game they're playing or the, the thing that's happened that day or, you know, the two boys have argued with each other. So, you know, it's all those things that you're just kind of like this real life, right? So family is a huge energy point for me. I think outside of that, like you said, I, I do love reading. Um, I do love, I, I historically loved anything that kind of raises your pulse a bit. So I love surfing. I love motocross. I love anything that kind of is a little bit dangerous. But uh, some, get, uh, getting older uh, these days, so... <laughs> Brave enough. How long have you been doing motocross? I've loved, gosh, I've loved it for, I was quite late too, actually. I wasn't from a, I wasn't kind of like three years old and the first thing I did was pick up a bike. But I remember riding on my dad's when we were children um, on the back in, in kind of fields outside of our house. But I didn't really pick up back into that till I was probably early 20s, something right. like that. But yeah, I've always loved it, always loved it. And yeah, I'm trying to think anything. I love movies. I'm a big movie buff. I could bore you about movies all day if you want to talk about any of Oh, you can't do one. That's no, just too, it's too I always, difficult. I, think, I, I too agree. Difficult. I always, when someone says, what's your favourite song? You think, oh, don't ask me to pick one. I can't possibly pick one. There are too many. Is, is there a kind of you know, a, movie, a go-to movie you think that's the one, that for me is the classic, that's the one that always oh, resonates? I, I just, I really don't, I don't think I can pick one. I mean, I think, you know, you go to the obvious of like, cinematically and by design you know you can't deny star wars lord of the rings the, the kind of those huge i guess what have become huge franchises now are just they're so well thought through and they, they bring the stories to life so well you know perhaps a bit more non-obvious um you know i, I like films like um just films that make you think right so th- whether it's like inception shutter island those kind of like oh that was i didn't see the twists coming again much more mainstream or perhaps a bit less so so something like butterfly effect which is kind of a bit of an older film these days but yeah i mean there's a very 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 long list i always my wife always laughs that my kind of list of top 100 films is kind of not 100 um <laughs> and I, do, I do kind of miss the physical collection of them like i've still got loads of dvds at home in one room but now everything's not it's all digital you just don't quite get the same i don't get that same buzz of like going and buying something and physically having a look at it and maybe i'm, old, maybe I'm old school no, no, i think i think I've, i seem to have had a lot of conversations of late about vinyl yeah 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 sure sure, uh, sure. And there's definitely been a resurgence in vinyl, yeah. uh, but i kind of miss that um 
there's an element of nostalgia with what I'm now about to describe, but that sense that you'd go out on a Saturday afternoon, you'd go to a record shop, you'd leave through all the records, you'd look at the cover, the album covers, you'd read the inside of the cover, yep. you'd kind of, you might even pick up a record, maybe not having heard it. Yep. You maybe knew the artist, but you were attracted to the cover yeah. or the artwork. Whatever. All of those sorts of things. It's a little bit lost with with downloads, and that makes me sound as old as I am. But <laughs> I, I can't. I get you. I, I understand what you mean. The tangible feel of, of you know, experiencing a film and, yeah. and, and, and all that comes with it is it's a bit of a shame that we might start to lose that but that's that's progress so they tell us indeed so if you come if you come back to the the benefits experience if mm, you like sure. and your role within that I mean, what have you loved about it mm, I, i've loved i've loved the people bits i think that you know inherently any business whatever it makes you know however phenomenal its products are it's still all about the people that are in it so I've loved the people bits. Not always. <laughs> you know, people are can equally amaze you and astound you and, you know, conversely can can frustrate you uh, in equal measure. So people's definitely been a huge bit for me. You know, I, I, you know, it's always nice to reflect on milestones and stuff like that, but they're kind of endpoints rather than the processes we go through. I've really enjoyed, I enjoy the technical challenge. Um, I've really tried to build a very different organisation and one that, you wouldn't ever find words from me like you know it's not it's not personal it's just business and that stuff i think inherently businesses are personal and people at the end of the day and i've always tried really hard to be really open and straight with people for better or worse you know for example right from the beginning we did a quarterly offsite with everybody and we still do it even now which is a warts and all view of the business how are we performing what's going well what's not what are we all doing about that? Where are we focused? And we now do that even monthly. So we do a kind of bigger quarterly one and we do it every right. single month. But we kind of over-communicate in some of those things to really make sure we try and share how it's going and share all the detail that sits behind it. And also trying to create an organization that was, you know, startups are hard. The business needs to move fast. You've got lots of things you have to do. But I don't think inherently they therefore need to not think about people in that process. And, you know, we... We're really open about people's mental health here. We're really open about um, challenges that people may have. We, we really are a culture that will support if someone becomes unwell, we won't just jettison them like a lot of organizations, but we'll support them through that process. And you know, I'd like to think if, if nothing else in the process, I think we've tried to create something that was very different, that wasn't just solely focused on you know, profit as an outcome, regardless of the people, people bits of that. I don't know if that's what you wanted to hear. Yeah, but. no, I don't think, do you think that that's... This might sound somewhat simplistic and broad sweeping, but that's how business has started to evolve. Mm. We've become very much more aware of employee welfare, employee well-being. Uh, I think generally, from a societal perspective, very much more aware of mental health mm. and all the implications around that. Always fascinated me that you know you go to the, uh, you, yeah, you play football, you break your leg, you put they put a cast on it, and everyone says, "Poor you." Because you, it's very tangible, but you start talking about mental health and people's natural reaction historically would one of be one of perhaps pull yourself together. Yeah, yeah. we've got much better at having the discussion around that and all that that would entail. I think that's that's got to be the continue to be the direction of travel, and Definitely. I applaud those that support that. Yeah, I, and I do think the market is moving there. I think some organisations find it harder than others, and I think that the reality is for me, I think that we, we've got to get to this place where it's you know people understand it's okay to not be okay yep. you know we all have ups and downs and i think if there's one thing life will throw at you it's a lot <laughs> and so how you might feel today will change over time and so 
you know, just because I'm struggling now doesn't mean I always will. Um, you know, just because I was a top performer doesn't mean I always will be. And I think the key of what I try and get across to people is that you just need to really build a, a framework for you that enables you to feel resilient and that you just try and understand what triggers that. So how you sleep, how you eat, how you think about things, how you process things. You know, everyone always leaps to kind of, oh, like, let's talk about mindfulness and those types of things. And if that works for you, it can be phenomenal. But I think you just have to understand what causes you to feel that way. And it can often be nothing to do with work. You know, most people actually suffer from mental health problems, in my experience, from outside factors. But work compounds. And if you can't identify that early on or you don't feel like you can talk about it, people clearly get to this kind of bursting and breaking point that often you see. I still think it's criminal for men because, you know, still you know, four out of every five suicides are men. Yeah. So I think we've got to do a far better job of supporting each other. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I always envy when I look at my wife or, you know, friends, they, they're kind of just very open to talk about how they feel and there's nothing wrong with having a cry or a bad day or whatever else. And yet still for men, it is still that pull your socks up a bit, right? If you yeah. kind of get upset it's still that uncomfortable I don't know what to do feeling and I think that hopefully that will change generationally um, I wonder though part of my I've, as I mentioned earlier I've got I've got kids too hmm. 16 and 17 so a little bit older than yours but I look come to you world. for some tips over the next few years because I feel like we're getting to the interesting <laughs> bit now it's, it's, it's great I'm not sure I'd have that many tips that I would uh, successful tips I would share but they may tell you differently but I think one of the things that strikes me is the world that they're growing into mm. and that whole issue around to your point you know everybody's got their issues everybody's got their challenges and their opportunities and there's no right or wrong they're different for, yeah. for everybody and I think part of the problem is that they you know they exist in a world that I mean certainly I didn't exist in when I was a teenager whereby we get these little snapshots windows into people's worlds mm. now that look perfect so social media affords the opportunity to perpetuate this my perfect life myth sure, sure. and they measure themselves against that so uh, you know clearly it's only a snapshot a moment in time but that perception thing is that life looks perfect why isn't my life mm. perfect and so i wonder i worry sometimes as i reflect on the way that society is driving that you know on the one hand we get we're, we're sat here now talking about mental health in a way that as, as two guys, probably 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, it would never have come up in conversation. Now we can have this conversation and, and that's a good thing. Mm. But yet at the same time, there's another swell of, of perfection that, mm. that exists yeah. that is, uh, is just simply not reality. And that is pushing against what I think the kind of discussion we're encouraging. Um, I don't know what the answer is to that, but that's one of the things that might concern me as my kids are evolving mm. and, and growing into a world that says there's a perfect life out there doesn't exist yeah i, I don't disagree with that and I, th I think there is no there is no perfect answer from from everything i've certainly read I, I mean the bit that worries me almost as much of that is the way you get these polarized opinions that are happening as a result of social media and so i've always was brought up in a way to believe that inherently if someone didn't agree with your view that the best way to understand their perspective was to debate about it and talk about it and hear them out, listen to what they had to say. And you still might walk away completely agreeing that to disagree, but you would have the debate. Whereas it seems that social and, you know, indeed political and current climate just seems that we've kind of edged towards this completely polar view of like, 
that's my view, you're wrong, and I'll tweet about that, and that's it. And we've just kind of moved away from discussion, and we've moved away from the ability to actually converse with differing opinions and get to what might be a good outcome. And, and I think, agree with you and that worries me, I think, for our, for my kids, because they kind of look at it in, in a kind of, oh, okay, so it's kind of that side or that side. And, and I'm kind of like, well, if you read both sides, make up your own view, right? So really think about it. And if you want to talk to people on either side, then we'll find people who've got those views and we'll have that discussion and debate. But mm. it, it isn't just quite so black and white always in the sense of, you know, in, in the world, there isn't just a, it's this way or it's this way. It, it, there is lots and lots of areas where that middle way is also fine. You know, there are, you can find your own path in all of that. And, and I think, I really struggle with that with social media because I just think it's so polarizing. And the more you follow with the same voice, the more the same voice comes up, if that makes sense. And I I just think you get this kind of singular view of the world. And in some ways, that's great. You know, one of my kids is is absolutely fascinated with Japanese computer games and all those kind of things. And so they, they can go and follow those. And inherently, they see loads of more, you know, more content and more people like them who, you know, and they feel part of that kind of tribe. And I think that's a really great thing. But if you flip that on its head and you think about, you know, a difficult view of the world, you know, where you've got someone who maybe like Trump, who's a bit more polarizing, if they were to suddenly sign up to a whole set of you know people who were following a particular individual of a certain set of beliefs, you suddenly get this amplification effect that happens where all they see in their feed, all they hear about is that one particular topic and view. I think you saw a lot of that with Brexit and a lot of that with yes. you know, kind of all of those kind of things where you just had the second you got involved or started to kind of follow any of those things, you, you forever saw all of that. And, and I don't think you saw a lot of either side. I think you saw a lot of whatever the view was you followed at the beginning. Well, to your point, it's almost become, it's not okay to have a, to, you know, to agree to disagree anymore. Sure. You either have to be left or right, black or white, red or blue, whatever it might be, yeah. you have to be... You have to pick. You have to pick a side. Yeah. And I think probably what we've experienced over the last few years, Brexit's a great example of that in the UK. I think we've seen with US politics mm. then starts to feed through to the rest of the world and how the rest of the... Certainly the Western world in terms of how we think, you have to pick a side. Mm-hmm. And to your point, I think that I was always brought up to believe the best way to form your own opinion is to gather as many other opinions as you can and then make a decision, but be informed. Whereas to your point now, and I think it'd be too simplistic to simply put it down to an algorithm, but you know, you start watching one side and you get fed more and more and more and more and more of that side. You can understand why people then start to believe, well, clearly these people over here are fools because they believe something entirely different. That's the wrong answer. Well, and if if what you're seeing is a hundred of that first view and one of the other view, then you're like, well, the majority don't agree with that. So, you and you kind to, of end up with this weird, with this weird, like I said, this weird polarizing effect. You always have to try and accept that the world doesn't exist on, because if we believed everything we read on Twitter, sure, we'd it's come to incredibly binary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a bit unfair maybe on Twitter. It's got some clearly got some great points, but it's so binary. Yeah. And I think it's that's a, it's really interesting that we should be having this this discussion because I think you then, you know, it, it, that permeates through to the workplace. Mm-hmm. You know that that. We need to be able to encourage, I think, people in the workplace to have differing opinions that actually, in the right way, conflict is healthy. Debate, certainly healthy. Uh, If you look at it from a leadership perspective, I think undeniably you need a a, a room of people who, behind closed doors, can have Mm -hmm. heated debate, strong difference of opinion, but that 
they agree when the, when the door is open again, there's a, there's a clear direction of travel and everyone's pulling behind it. We need to encourage our, our, you know, our, our kids and, and people coming through that conflict is, it, conflict is a natural part of life, but there's a way to deal with it and a way to embrace it and a way to experience it that doesn't have to be aggressive. Yeah, and, and I think you know, all the Patrick Lencioni stuff that, that is great at that kind of you know, healthy conflict. You know, I think that meetings done well are always a bit gritty, and I think too often you kind of, I've certainly joined meetings of businesses that I've been involved with and you're like, so we're all, in, we're all in complete agreement on every point we've just been through because, you know, the highest paid person in the room's opinion is kind of the most valid. Is that what we're all doing right now? And, and you just kind of watch people kind of squirm a little bit under that question because it probably isn't true, right? You kind of, I, I've sat in these things before where you get these, you know, and some of them incredible CEOs who are explaining kind of like, this is definitely what we're going to do and here's why and everything else. And everyone agrees around the table. You, you know that there are, it's not saying don't do that because you've got to follow whoever's running that business. But if you think that can't be done in the time frame we have, what can we do to adjust it? You have to raise it at that point. Even if what you then commit to is, do you know what, we're going to go for it, helpful leather, and try and get it done. You can't say nothing. And, no. and yeah, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> I think it's a really, it's a really we, we live in fascinating times. Mm. So, it, you, I mean, on that point, you, you as well as being the founder here, obviously, I, I'd read that you were you're part of the advisory board for KPMG's global fintech. Mm-hmm. Uh, 100 business uh, and for salary finance uh, you're a Barclays entrepreneur ambassador and advisor what do you think you've learned from from those external experiences if you like that you've been able to impart in here and vice versa I think the reason I started doing them originally was I wanted to to kind of help take salary finance as a great example so new phenomenal team I mean if you ever get a chance to meet the team there Asesh Daniel Dan Cobley both in terms of their backgrounds, but also just how they were thinking about going at the market and everything else. Just an amazing team. And I think when you see that team, you kind of, there's almost that like tingle down your spine of like, oh my gosh, this is something that's going to be quite special in terms of how they're going to make this work and what they're going to do. And, And then you're into kind of, execution challenge, you know, is the market there? Do they have the capital to, to kind of seize the opportunity? And what they've gone on to do is is absolutely incredible. Um, you know, they're a phenomenal group of people. When I first got involved, it was really a case of, you know, I deeply understood the market they were trying to get into and I just wanted to be helpful. You know, I met them. I thought they were a great group of people to learn from and it felt like actually there's kind of a quid pro quo here is actually you're going to do some really exciting stuff in a market that looks really interesting. I understand sets of a, big, a big chunk of that market and I can help with some of those early customers and building that credibility. And that was kind of the win-win for me. And I think in all the people, in all the people I've helped and advised, in all the stuff I've invested in, it's always had that core of like, this is a really good group of people. They're going to do some cool stuff. And it's not always like clearly defined necessarily, although salary finance was very well defined. They're not always clearly defined. But the bit I always learn from that is they have a completely different set of challenges. And so particularly you know, as an advisor, you know, as a non-exec, as an investor, you have different lenses that you can give people. But at the end of the day, it's not your business and you're not running it. And so you have to think of it in that context, which is very difficult for someone who's been a founder in a number of businesses to kind of take a step back and go, okay, I'm here to help. I'm more coach and advisory and the team don't have to listen. And so you kind of, 
when you realize that though and you can click into that your ability to give people advice and help and guidance that you accept they might ignore but actually that's really kind of quite cathartic because you can then actually ask some quite difficult questions without being you know difficult about it yeah like i said earlier on about okay so because the ceo said it all we're all going to be fine with that it's all going to work it's all going to be rosy but i think for me i got loads out of those because not only were the people great i just like seeing how people think through problems as they get to them and i think you just you get loads out of of seeing good teams go at really hard problems um because i think you just inherently learn loads along the way mm. and and by way of example, what, what have you learned from the experience? <laughs> Trying to work out things I can disclose. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, no, 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 that's fine. I'm <laughs> so, I mean, I think if I look at how they, let's take public information. So if I look at how they thought about funding, so Salary Finance is owned by Blenheim Chalcott, which is um, a, a quite a unique organization mm. in the sense it's a venture builder. Yeah. So actually they find great entrepreneurs or great people who they, who want to be an entrepreneur and they give them enough capital to really go at a big market. And it's very different. So you, effectively what they're doing is they're saying, okay, we'll take away the issue of funding and we'll solve that for you. So however big it's going to get, we'll kind of solve that issue of funding. And if you take salary finance, huge market, huge opportunity and what the team were able to do was really really focus on how do we scale this thing yeah and how do we really and that's not to say they never had to think about funding because obviously they did and you know part of what they do is loan money and all those types of things and so you've got to make sure those things line up but you know one of the things i learned from that is what in the right market with the right timing and the right capital what you can do and it was brilliant to be in those meetings because you suddenly had a very, and I would almost call it a US-centric view of the world, where it was almost like, what do I need to believe to see that this thing's going to be huge? And it totally flips the conversation when you're having it. It's not like, like, what can I afford to do today to get to tomorrow and grow this business? It was almost like, if I apply this capital, so this money in this place on these teams or people or bits of the market, what could the outcome be? How big could it get? And it's a really different way of thinking. And, it, and like I said, it's perhaps a little bit more US, but it's definitely venture and just the sense of like thinking about not thinking all the time about the negatives and avoiding risk and everything else, but just thinking about with a following wind, where could we get to? And it's a really, it's a healthy way to think, I think. So if you look at the um, the advice that you're imparting, if you, if you reflect back on your own, mm. what's, what's, is there one piece of advice that perhaps has been given to you that you would say is the real standout that's the best piece of advice that ever you've been given a few probably one of the real standout ones is don't make permanent decisions on temporary feelings because i think that too often you see people making very very specific non-reversible decisions on how they might feel in a day or how they might have felt based on someone one person's feedback and so it's quite hard because doing this kind of stuff is quite emotive and it's very personal and you can get very kind of caught up and drawn into it but at times you have to you have to take a little bit of a step back and say okay like am i making this decision for the right reasons one of the other big ones for me was just you need to spend some time on it not in it which was a really specific piece of advice early on from from somebody that said take a chunk of the you know at some point in the year or multiple points in the year take a step away from the business and just spend time looking at it from a kind of third person perspective. 
So rather than being in issues every day, book it as holiday almost and go away and look back at, are we where we thought we would be? Are the team right? You know, there's a whole set of things you can do as part of that. But the concept of, of working on the actual business and its structure and the team and everything else rather than like in the day-to-day was quite a difficult, difficult transition early on. And I think a very, a very difficult thing in, practic- in practical terms to do yep. because I guess, again, a broad sweeping statement, but so much of what I see is that we place increasingly less value and virtue on thinking and a real focus on doing. So yep. the value is in doing. So that kind of, I'm sure I, I can, I won't name names, but I've certainly had conversations too. I love to read, a bit like you, but I lost count of the time I would have, someone would have walked into a room and said, oh, have you got a minute? And you're reading a book and, oh, you're not doing anything. Well, I'm reading. Now, once upon a time, that might have afforded me great virtue. People would have said, oh, yes, he's a thinker. He's an intellectual. He's a philosopher. I'm clearly not. But, you know, there was value in it. Whereas now we value, oh, yeah, he's busy because he's running around and he's doing stuff. So actually, I think that, so I always remember, as an aside, somebody once said to me, good guy, actually. Um, he was a CEO at the time. He actually said to me, Lee, would you ever sit in your business and read a book at your desk? And I looked at him really quizzically, like, I thinking, where's he going with this? He said, well, let me put it another way. If that book that you were reading... Uh, was contributing to the success of your business, whether it be strategically or practically in terms of things you could implement, whatever it might have been. If it was contributing to your business success, would you sit at your desk and read it? And I said, absolutely not. He said, why on earth not? He said, because people would be looking at me and thinking he's not doing anything. Mm. He said, exactly. But, so what do you do? He said, well, I'll read it on holiday. I'll read it in the evenings. I'll read it in my own time. Or, you know, I'm running a business. It's, is it your own time? There's always that blur. Sure, sure. But he said, but, You've just said it's contributing to the success of your business. So why wouldn't you do it on business time? And we had this real debate around doing versus thinking. Mm. And where does that position as the leader in the business, how much of your time and how do you put, you know, I think that's a really, really difficult yep. situation through which you have to get yourself as a founder. Yeah. And, and I understand, therefore, your point around you know, how, do you, how do you make the leap and how do you make that leap? Because I don't know that there are many that are able to make that leap successfully yeah i mean i think i think it brings an interesting point for me of of kind of another bit of kind of advice i got early on which was almost everyone manages their time to the nth degree but no one really thinks about energy and we all know inherently i think like when are we effective in a day and so i structure my days now so that those points are when i do the heavy lifting i need to do Without distraction, without anything else, I will just, unless there's a real fire or an emergency, right? But by and large, I'm left alone to focus on the heavy lifting. At the points in the day, I know I'm most effective at those things and I can do really heavy work. But conversely, we all know as well, those people that are going to take energy from us during the day. Yeah. We've all got them. You know, in every organization, there's those people you need to bolster, those people that bolster you and, you know, everyone in between. And just think about where they sit in a day because so often I'll, I'll, I'll kind of talk to CEOs that I've been working with and I'm kind of like, so how is everything? Oh, I find it really hard at the moment. And you know, and you step through their day and what they've done is they've started with what they perceive to be the hard people meetings, right? So the people that they know take a lot of energy are like, you know, from seven in the morning, I'll have breakfast with them and then I'll do that. So by 10 o'clock, 70% of their energy is gone. It's just gone into these people who are, okay, they can now go off and do other things. But that person's now got the remainder of their day with 30% of their energy to go at it. 
And I think it's a really hard thing to think about. Like, yeah. but it, it, we all think about time and just like I, I'll a lot time an hour, an hour, an hour. Um, but they don't think about how my energy is. And so for me, for example, like eight till 10 in the morning is when I do my heaviest work. Right. Weirdly, it's also like 12 till two at night, which doesn't help me or anyone, but, um, but, but kind of, I know that's when I'll do the heaviest lifting for me is that kind of real focus stuff will happen there. Um, but you just have to learn kind of who, who will, who will give you energy and take energy from you. And that doesn't mean you should ignore either party. It just means that you, you think about how you kind of manage your energy in the day. I also have an inherent hate for one hour meetings. I don't quite get why we've all landed on an hour is the appropriate time for a meeting. So, you know, I think it's one of those where I'm a big fan of like, do you need an hour? You know, um, if you've got the information ahead of time and it's a series of decisions, it's probably 20 minutes, right? But we'll fill an hour. Somebody once said to me that they'd set up what they described as got a minute meetings in their company on a Friday morning at nine o'clock. Because what he used to find is as his company was growing and they were open plan, certainly in the early days, people would constantly come up to his desk and say, have you got a minute? Yeah. And invariably, he didn't. But because he was investing in his people and he felt it was the right thing to do for all the reasons we would recognize, he would give them that time. And most of the time in his experience, they were just simply looking to validate their thought process or just looking for that reassurance, reassurance or whatever yeah. it might have been. So what he decided to do is he'd scrap it because he felt it was never getting anything done productively himself. He'd scrap it and then set up on a Friday morning a, a schedule in his diary of what he'd refer to as have a minute meeting. So he'd be, right, you can come and see me between this time and this time on a Friday. I'll be full, uh, mind open, <laughs> yeah. ready to hear what you have to say. And he found that as a consequence, a number of things impacted really positively. One, a, a significant proportion of people stopped coming to his desk for that reassurance and just did. And as a consequence, learned, they made some mistakes and he helped them, supported them. When they made those mistakes, they made mistakes they grew as a consequence. They developed. And he took a lot of that time. So he found that those meeting, those have you got a minute meeting on a Friday actually brought up some really pertinent point, mm-hmm. points that would drive some real value through his business. But yeah, it's, it's you kind of, as that focal point founder, yeah. all the eyes and focus is on you and everybody wants a piece of your time. It's difficult to manage. And particularly as you grow, I think, as you grow and new layers get introduced in your organization, the people that had direct access to you want to retain that yes. and so it becomes like a kind of compounding but yeah we've got a customer that did um uh they do now every thursday's no meetings so you're not allowed to have any meetings on that day and the productivity they they believe is is phenomenally improved as a result so you look at on that subject of productivity i suppose and therefore technology which has been a you know is a, a key component the component if you like that has, has has been integral to so much of what you do and have done sure sure but if, from a personal perspective, what's the one piece of technology that you can't do without? <laughs> um, my phone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I was, I was the person queuing up for the iPhone when it first came out. Literally day one, had one. Um, and I've never not had one since. And so I, whatever phone you pick, I, I just think having something you can do so much with, you know, I, I can, it just blows my mind even now. And so... It would, without a doubt, be my phone because it's everything. It, it connects you to the people you care about. You know, if I'm if I'm in another part of the world, I can FaceTime the kids when they're having dinner. You know, it's just like the amount of stuff it enables me to do from like boring, I've got to go and do something on the bank to actually kind of like, oh, I haven't seen so-and-so for ages. I wonder how they are, you know, and, and everything in between. It's kind of, I don't think there's one device that's kind of had that much impact on me as that. And it's always to a point now whereby once upon a time when you left the house and it had been a quick check, keys, wallet, phone, it's now kind of 
fun. Yeah. It's almost 100%, pretty much yeah, yeah, 100%, yeah, yeah, literally it literally is. You can do everything else in life. Yeah. And so in, in, in terms of that, that focus around technology, sure, sure. What, what excites you about the way that technology is evolving in business? I mean, is there, is there one particular innovation or vision that you have as, 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 if you like, as to where the future is headed that really excites you? There's a lot, actually. There's a lot that excites me. I think there's kind of excitement and a bit of trepidation in kind of equal measure. I think that the bit I can't quite wrap my head around is we have all these tools inherently to make us more efficient. Yeah, I think net productivity hasn't really increased. No. And I, and I think that's... Statistically, that's certainly yeah, true in the UK. And, and it kind of sits... And that kind of gnaws away a little bit in the back of my mind as to why that doesn't feel the case. But then when you think about it in reality, that's probably true, right? And now every single application I almost use has its own inbox. So I've got work email, I've got a collaboration platform that we use which has its own inbox in it. I've got personal email, I might have a few of those accounts. I've then got LinkedIn, I go and see LinkedIn, I've got an entire, you know, there's another, so it just, you go to, I don't really use Facebook, but you know, you go to any of those kind of social channels, they've got an entire inbox for you to look at, people reach out. So you just end up with, I feel a little bit at times like a slave to the mailbox. And there's some products coming out now where they're actually aggregating all of those into a single view, which sounds like a crazy thing, like one mailbox to rule them all. But it feels like that single view of all those things going on is actually quite helpful. <laughs> Um, because they're just absolutely you, you you struggle with the kind of you know real insight from the noise as it were um, as part of that but I think technologically I guess you know you you can't ignore the progress that's being made in all forms of AI uh, probably less of the dystopian view that it's going to take over in the near term but there are obviously some you know, scary stories I think you know I think artificial general intelligence is a long way off, uh, personal view. Um, there are mixed views. I think more inherently scary for us is the ability to actually get uh, machines that do very specific tasks phenomenally well. And there's a, there's a brilliant uh, thing on YouTube. If you Google Slaughterbots, I don't know if you've ever seen it on no, YouTube. But it basically shows, it's a bit like an Apple presentation, but it's, done, it's not kind of spoofed, but it's all about these little drones that they release that you can't shoot because they can avoid you because they've got sight and basically they carry an explosive so they can fly towards someone land and explode basically and it talks about kind of how that changes the world um, and i think inherently that's probably a little bit more scary than anything else so I'm, I'm really excited about what's possible to solve and even if you just look at some of the core underlying applications that you know we now have ai that can detect cancer better than a radiographer we now have ai that can look at various different trends and help you with whether it's genome sequencing dna sequencing the likelihood of you picking up certain illnesses so i think this idea of ai as a kind of co-pilot to help us make better decisions whether it's about health or whether it's about you know who we give a loan to or whether it's about other life choices i think is, is a massively exciting space and everything i read in in that space just makes me more excited about what what we're getting done the converse is, you know, there's some risk in that, right? So bias is inevitably built in a lot of those systems. So it's you know, difficult to kind of work our way through that in a kind of clean way. And, you know, I think that way ahead of artificial general intelligence will, you know, autonomous weaponry in its general sense is a worrying space yeah. for me. And you know, I'd like to do more in that space to kind of raise awareness of that. It's not really my field, but I've read an awful lot about it that kind of makes me think actually... 
you know, there's some people who say like kind of, you know, robots fighting robots, well, that feels like a better thing than people, right? And I, I kind of think they're missing the point in the sense of, of the overall danger to individuals is, is, is significant. So yeah, so I think, you know, I'm very excited about AI. Um, I'm very excited about where the market's going in terms of, you know, augmented reality and virtual reality, you know, seeing my kids using their, their VR headsets and, and how it kind of unlocks this world. I just think having two children with significant disabilities, I think what's interesting is if you see what VR can unlock for somebody, I think there's just so many use cases of, of what it will enable people to do in future. And that could be as inherently uninteresting as like, I can really physically join this meeting and see you all at work, right through to, you know, actually, you know, uh, if I have become paralyzed, how can I still experience some of those things that, that maybe I physically can't do anymore? Uh, but that I could go and do that. So l there's loads of technology stuff that excites me. I could probably yeah. bore you for ages about it. But I think inherently I'm still on the camp of kind of AI for good overall. But there's a few worrying kind of avenues off that if we're not careful. Um, and I'm also kind of you know excited about where things like VR and those types of things can go. I'd, I'd love to believe in blockchain. I'd probably get lots of comments for not saying that I do. But I think... I've not seen the kind of kind of killer use case for it yet. It feels like it's if I need to read lots about it to understand it, which I have done, it feels inherently like it's not going to quite catch on as quickly as you might like. Yeah. And so you can see lots of great use cases, but I think some of the greatest future companies will that will be hidden underneath and just an inherent use case for what sits on top of it and what it delivers in terms of value. But I'm less excited about that if I'm honest, just because I think that I think the practical applications are a little bit of a way off. How about you? Uh, too many to mention. I think, <laughs> I think, I think the, the, interestingly, I think the advances in healthcare technologies yeah, incredible. are phenomenal. And I think that that's probably the one thing that would really excite me. I would have some concerns similar to you around where robotic warfare heads. I remember I'd been to see the film 1917 yeah. with my son, uh, my daughter, uh, at the time, just about the time at which the assassination of the name has now completely escaped me, but in Iran by the US. Yes. Soleimani? Yeah. Yes. And my son's saying to me, and he's 16, you know, oh, dad, do you, think, do you think there's going to be a third world war? And that sparked off a whole debate around, well, all these lads of your age went over the top in the first world war. Mm -hmm. What happens to me? Will I get conscripted? It unlocked a whole series of things. And actually, we ended up with that conversation around, you know, that arguably any sense of war now will be, you know, will be missiles or weapons delivered in an air-conditioned room mm. on, a, on a business park somewhere by remote control, which in itself felt incredibly scary. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think things like that, those sorts of technological advances, I've not, you know, they, they would concern me, not keep me awake at night, they concern me. But I think the, the flip of that is that we're advancing so incredibly with respect to to uh, medical technology and healthcare technology. So I think that's hugely exciting. Mm. So what's the, what's the one thing that you've always wanted to do, but that you've never had the time to do that you're going to do? <laughs> that you want to talk about? Yeah, 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 yeah. sure, sure, sure. Um, I guess we've always said to the, so we homeschool our children. So we've always said we'd love to do Route 66 properly. So like Winnebago, go do the whole drive do all of that as part of it. So that's still definitely on that list. We were going to do it 
prior kind of as part of our honeymoon but we had the opportunity to buy a house and so we spent the money on that like people do but yeah that would be definitely on that list there's loads on that list I just try to think it through you know I think my wife and I both love boxing so having just watched the the fight over the weekend you know sitting ringside I think to see some of those legendary heavyweight fights has been good fun to do yeah like to do more of that do you box yourself no no no, I'm not, I'm not that brave. <laughs> I'm also not that fit these days, so uh, maybe I should work on that bit. There's one, there is, there's one business I'd love to launch as well, which is all in the space of inherently, I think, a lot of when people pass away, you slowly miss a whole set of kind of information and context around them. And I think... I'd love to have a business that enabled people to record, you know, not just a digital will, but actually leave messages for people that are future dated. You know, I've had some friends who you know, have taken their own lives. I've had some people who, who've died far too young and weren't there to see their kids grow up. And I'd love, I think there's a real opportunity to have an application that enables you to deliver you know, future messages to the people that are important to you. And also tell a bit more about your story, right? Because I think... I look at my granddad, one of the things I did before he passed away was a whole set of interviews with him of all the great stories that we knew he'd told over the years and what he did during the war and how, you know, he set fire to uh, one of the latrines in Egypt and all these scorpions like flooded the camp and everything. So there was just loads and loads of great stories that we'd all heard over the years, but we knew that if we didn't get them down somewhere, that they would fade over time. And it was just, I I think that there is been so much focus on documenting life in social media and those types of things that I think there's you know inherently death is a part of life but actually yeah I've always loved that I don't know if you've ever seen that film P.S. I Love You where each they, they, oh, yeah, I want to say yes I yeah have. so they're, they're going out for Gerard Butler so they're, they're going yes. out and he, he effectively passes away but he leaves her these notes about moving on and kind of one to be delivered at certain points during the kind of following period and I've always felt like if it was me and I was kind of um, diagnosed with something that I would really want the ability to say something personally to my kids at a future date in time. I had uh, somebody that I went to school with actually passed away from from cancer very young. He would have been in his late twenties, maybe mm-hmm. thirty. But he had a he'd had a daughter, and I think she was probably two or three when she when he passed away. But he wrote um, he wrote cards before yeah. he died for the big moments in our life. So an 18th birthday, 21st, uh, a wedding day card, all of those sorts of things, first child. Well, he wrote them and left them, obviously left them with his wife that she might then give them yep. to their daughter when she, when the time came. And I think that's just such a wonderful thing. Yep. And actually, when we were talking now, the thing that came to mind, I don't know if you've seen the Ricky Gervais series, Afterlife. Yes, I have, yeah. But I know it's, a, it's, a, but yeah, it's obviously a comedic example, albeit quite a dark one, but yeah. even, th- even through that, she leaves a series of videos, doesn't she, she for does, him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think so that's a wonderful idea. There's yeah. nothing like that around, I guess. No. We should no. possibly well, can think... this bit. <laughs> <laughs> if podcast. someone wants to go build it, I would definitely be a supporter. <laughs> it's a super idea. Um, but it's just, I think it's inherently, we've all had those moments of loss, right? And I think there's, yeah. for me, there's nothing more comforting than I, I go back when I think about my granddad, I go back and listen to those moments. And it's got my granddad in it and my nan in it. Um, you know, and, and, and in, in each other's, they're in both, right? Because she's wandering in and out, you know, with offering him cups of tea and all sorts of other stuff. But it, it's just, um, I think too quickly memories fade. And I think that we're, I think what got me there is like seeing 
people that had passed away and, and their Facebook kind of stops, right? It's kind of a static moment in time, kind of almost like becomes a shrine to that individual. And I, and I get why, you know, that's what Facebook does and that they've taken a lot of time to look at their policies around what they do and uh, once people have passed away. But I think for me, I just think that there is this, there's a gap there that someone should do. I think that's about. a super idea. I really like that. So what, what are the next five years look like for oh, crystal years. ball gazing? What, what, what are the next five years look like for you, Matt? Um, I guess for me, it boils down more to kind of like the themes of what I would want to be doing. And, and so I think I want to be solving difficult problems with some really smart people and I get lots of energy from that. And so that's kind of whether that's in this company, other companies, partnering with companies, you know, for, for, you know, whatever it might be, I just get lots of energy from that. So that's, you know, if, if, if I can continue to do that in any guise, then that's going to kind of be where, I, where I'll be largely focused. You know, I think that inevitably there'll be, you know, as much time as I can with the family and the kids, you know, because they are already young ones. And uh, we we <laughs> we bought an old Victorian rectory, which definitely I don't think I've seen that film, The Money Pit, but it feels yes. a little bit like that occasionally. Yeah. It's amazing, and um, we've spent a lot of time making it a proper family home. And so I think inevitably old houses need tending to, a bit like uh, I, I'm sure me as an older person these days starting to need some tending to as well. But I think yeah, yeah, I think you know for me I think it's just. I like to be around people that make me feel energized and that I kind of feel inspired by. Fantastic. Thank you. Not at all. Brilliant. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say, any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.